right, well, good morning again. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we've been in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We actually started this back in the fall. Uh, we returned to it early in February, and we're going through the rest of Mark, building up to Easter. So Mark chapter 10 is where we find ourselves again this morning. Turn on your device, open your Bibles, and I will... I always, always strongly encourage you to follow along as we read through the text. So do we have any NASCAR fans in here? Any? Okay, nobody? Maybe one or two of you? Raise your hand. I, I'll give you, okay, you are? I'll give you, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for trying though. Uh, I'll give a disclaimer, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I have heard of the name Danica Patrick. Anybody heard of that name? So she's probably one of the more famous NASCAR drivers, racers, whatever you call them, and a few years ago, she was competing in the Indy 500, and she was on her 146th lap. That is why I'm not a NASCAR fan, because that just sounds monotonous and boring, but apparently she was getting ready to finish in the top 20, having a good race, and then all of a sudden she was involved in a 13-car crash. She was hit, I guess, from behind. And it sent her car going at a very high speed straight towards the wall. And she made a last second decision to let go of the steering wheel. How many of you would that be your instinct? My instinct would be to hold tighter to the steering wheel and try to keep as much control as possible. But because of her experience, she let go of the steering wheel and she crashed into the wall. Pretty bad wreck. She wound up being okay, but the experts say that because she let go of the steering wheel, uh, she saved her wrists. If she would have held on, the impact of hitting that wall, the steering wheel would have jerked so fast and so harshly, it would have snapped both of her wrists. So making that decision to let go actually saved a part of her. The story that we're looking at this morning is often called the story of the rich young ruler and really, it's a story about a young man who faces Jesus, and he has a decision to make. He can either hold on and try to keep control of his own life, or follow this invitation from Jesus to let go. And really, it's an invitation for us as well. Do we want to hold on, or do we want to let go? What I want to start with this morning is just reading Mark 10, verse 17 through 31, and then we're going to talk about this story. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, 
For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, we call this the rich young ruler even though Mark does not call him the rich young ruler, but if you take the synoptic gospels, Matthew refers to him as young, Mark calls him rich, Luke in Luke 18, which was our scripture reading this morning, calls him a ruler, we combine those together, and he's famously known as the rich young ruler. So I've preached on this before, not here at this church, but I've preached on this text at other churches before. I've taught on this text, usually from the Gospel of Luke. I've preached at church camps on this story. It's been very influential on my life, but as I knew this was coming up, one of the things that I try to discipline myself to do is to just listen to the text. Just read through it slowly, read through it several times, imagine myself in the story before I look at old sermon notes, before I read commentaries. So I read through this story a few weeks ago, a few different times, and Some initial thoughts and initial observations came up as I read through this, and one of those was about evangelism. With the way that we view evangelism in our culture today, we might consider Jesus a bad evangelist, because this guy comes up to him and basically serves himself on a silver platter, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If that's not a seeker, I don't know what is. And then the guy winds up walking away. So we might look at Jesus and question his evangelism tactics. We look at wealth. Obviously, Jesus has some harsh things to say about being rich. He has a strong demand for this guy to sell his possessions and give it to the poor. Um, And then he talks about the, the camel going through the eye of the needle, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. So... Wealth, obviously, seems to be a barrier to discipleship. Back in the fall, we tried to get you to memorize uh, the parable of the soils and the explanation from Mark chapter 4. And Jesus talks about one soil that, that grows up, but is choked out by the thorns. And what that represents are a few different things in life. And one of those things is the deceitfulness of wealth. So Jesus has some some strong words about money, about being rich, about wealth. And then he talks about what's impossible. It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. Well, what does he mean by that? And then he mentions towards the end of this section, if you give up something, if you let something go, what you gain in return is greater than what you let go. So those were my initial thoughts and observations as I read through this. And then you kind of have to keep reading and keep studying and keep searching to figure out some of the deeper meanings behind the text. Now, as I've studied it, there's this guy named Henry Nouwen that I think has helped me understand the rich young ruler. This is a picture of Henry Nouwen. He was, in the 20th century, a pretty well-known Christian author. He was a Bible professor, really intelligent guy, wrote a lot of books. Uh, He taught Bible at Harvard Divinity School and Yale Divinity School, but 
during this time, during all of his academic achievements, he was feeling inside of him this inner restlessness. He felt like maybe God was calling him to do something different, motivated by the teachings of Jesus. So he wound up leaving his position as a Bible professor and working amongst people who were in poverty. And eventually, to make a long story short, he wound up working in Canada with adults who had intellectual disabilities. Now, as he's working with these adults, he realized that all of his credentials, all of his academic achievements, all of the books that he's written didn't matter to these people. It didn't matter who he was in the past or what he has accomplished. He couldn't hide behind those things. They just simply knew him as Henry. So he went through a self-discovery process trying to figure out, well, who is Henry? If I'm not Henry the doctor or Henry the guy with, that's written all these books, if I'm not Henry the professor, well, then who really is Henry? So through this journey of trying to figure out who he really is, He gave a talk one day, and he said that all human beings kind of bounce around in between these three major human lies. The three lies where we find a false identity are, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others say or think about me. He said we kind of go up and down based on believing in these three lies, believing in uh, what, what our identity is, how we understand ourselves, we think about these three lies. So let's talk about those for just a minute. I am what I have. Well, that's kind of simple. We've known plenty of people, and maybe you've been that person where you find your identity based in your possessions. Maybe it's your car that you drive, or the type of house that you have, or the things that you've accomplished. Like, I am what I have. We want people to view us based on what we have. Maybe that's something that you struggle with. Maybe you this resonates with you, and you think, too often, you found your identity in what you have. Another one of those lies is, I am what I do. So I could use myself as an example here, as a preacher. I, I am a preacher. Sometimes people can't remember my, my name, so they just call me preacher. So I identify with my profession, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm proud of that, but am I more than just a preacher? Are you more than just what you do? Because I've known some preachers who have retired and been a preacher their entire adult life. And then when they're no longer the preacher, they've gone through an identity struggle to try to figure out, well, who am I if I don't have this title? Or you think about young people who are great athletes, maybe a great football, basketball player, softball, baseball, maybe a great gymnast. and, And you find your identity in what you do and other people identify you with that, but then your body fails you or you get injured and you can no longer do that. Well, then who are you? Well, Henry Nowen says that's a a lie that we believe about ourselves. I am what I have, I am what I do, or I am what others say or think about me. Is that who we are? Is that how we view ourselves? Are we just reduced to what people say about us or the way people view us or how other people think about us? As a preacher, am I just simply as good as the praise I receive or as bad as the criticism I receive, or do I find my identity in something else? And what Henry Nouwen would say in this speech that he gave is that's not where you find your identity, not in these three lies, but you are the beloved of God is what he would repeat over and over. But as I study the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10, 
these three lies really stood out to me because I believe the rich young ruler is finding his identity in at least two of these three lies. So if we go back through the text and you look at the initial conversation, verse 17 and 18, he comes up to Jesus, he falls on his knees, sounds like he has good motives, you know the question we looked at last week, from the Pharisees, it seems like they have bad intentions. They're wanting to trap Jesus. Well, he has good intentions, or at least it seems. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then, with a sudden twist, Jesus corrects that. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. That's puzzling for those who read this because you think, Jesus doesn't correct anyone else. When they come up to him and call him Lord or Savior or Son of God, why correct this guy here? Why say no one is good but God alone? Maybe it's because Jesus obviously has some sort of special insight into this guy's heart and his motives behind the question. And maybe Jesus knows that this guy somehow believes that inheriting eternal life is related to his goodness, to his performance, to his achievements. Maybe that's why Jesus says no one is good but God alone, because he's already cutting to the core of why this guy's coming to him in the first place. It seems like this rich young ruler, he wants to be patted on the back. He wants to be commended or praised or recognized for what he has and what he does. Two of those three lies from Henry Nouwen. So Jesus quotes some of the Ten Commandments to him in verse 19. In fact, these are commandments 6 through 9, and if we were doing a Bible class and we had more time, maybe we could talk about why Jesus chose these commandments and didn't explain a few of the other commandments. You know, there's different theories and different reasons on that. We're not going to get into all that right now, but basically Jesus gives them some of the Ten Commandments, and his response is, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. I've kept all of these since my youth. So basically he's saying, I was raised in this. And I do a really good job of keeping the commandments. You know, maybe he's really confident in himself. And he really does believe that he does a good job. Or maybe he's insecure. And he's looking for validation from another teacher like Jesus. And he wants Jesus to say, yes, good job. You've kept all of these since you were a boy. You're doing great. Maybe that's what he's looking for. He's wanting to be told, you are what you do. Your accomplishments. You are what others say or think about you, what other teachers or other leaders may say about him. That's where he's looking for his identity. Instead, in verse 21, Jesus looks at the man and Mark tells us he looked at him and he loved him. Have you ever caught that before? Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. Jesus cared about this guy. He had a love for him and he loved him enough to where he's willing to tell him some of the hard things. He's willing to tell him something that's going to make him uncomfortable. And the first thing he says is, one thing you lack. Now, as I've read through this, that has really stood out to me. Jesus responds to this guy and he says, there's one thing that you lack. What is that one thing? He said, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. I like that Jesus extends the invitation, then come follow me. The man's initial question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And then Jesus takes the conversation, as he often does, 
And he wind up going in a different direction. And instead of answering his question about eternal life, Jesus extends an invitation to come follow me. This is the same invitation that Peter received, that John, that James, and Andrew, that Levi, the same invitation, follow me. This is the same invitation that Jesus extends to this guy. And he says there's one thing that you lack, one thing holding you back. The house that I grew up in, uh, we watched a lot of movies on TV, so they're all edited. And there's this movie that my dad used to like called City Slickers. Billy Crystal's in this movie, and I remember this scene where they're riding on horseback, and Billy Crystal's talking to this old man that they've met in the mountains, and this old man says to him, do you want to know the secret to life? And Billy Crystal's like, yeah, tell me. And he held out his finger and didn't say anything, and Billy Crystal said, it's your finger? And he said, no, it's one thing. And he said, okay, what's the one thing? What's the one secret to life? And he said, I don't know, that's up for you to figure out. And then just left him. So he knows, okay, there's a secret to life and it's one thing, but he's got to figure out what that one thing is. Here Jesus says to this rich young ruler, there's one thing that you lack, but he's not going to leave it as a mystery. He tells him the one thing you lack is sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now Jason read this morning from Luke chapter 18, the same version of this story that we're looking at today. And if I were doing a sermon on the rich young ruler from the Gospel of Luke, I would probably spend more time on this whole sell your possessions and give to the poor thing. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke talks a lot about the rich and the poor and not finding your identity in your possessions and giving to the poor and being willing to let go with your stuff. I've taught this before, I've preached on this, and almost every single time I've preached through the story, simply quoting Jesus' words, I've always had somebody come up to me to tell me, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Job was rich, Abraham was rich, and people will start listing, and I'm like, I didn't say there was, I'm just reading what Jesus taught. I don't know what your one thing might be, but if you're feeling really defensive about this, and you're offended with Jesus saying this, maybe that's your one thing. I don't know. We see examples of this throughout the New Testament. If you look at the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4, when this early church is forming, we see these snapshots, these characteristics of the early church. And one of the things that they're doing is they're selling property, they're selling land, and they're giving it to the apostles, and the apostles are distributing it to the poor. That's probably the good example of what Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler to do. But he says there's one thing that you lack. Now, as I continue to dive into this story and you know, look through it and try to figure out, well, what does this mean to me? What would this mean to you? Uh, one way of looking at this story is to ask yourself if Jesus were talking to you. If Jesus were having this conversation with you and he said to you, there's one thing that you lack, what would the one thing be? This would cause you to do a little self-reflection. If you could just imagine, okay, think about your own life, think about some of the things that are going on, some of the habits you have in your life. That's one of the themes we've already talked about quite a bit this year. If Jesus were having this conversation with you, what would the one thing you lack be? Could it be that if Jesus were talking to you, it might be a hobby that you have? You know, this guy, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's going to cost him something. So 
because it's East Texas, you know, this is something we talked about in our staff meeting the other day, so if you get irritated with this, don't just blame me, blame the entire staff, because I'm typing up notes as we're going along, but what if it was, Jesus were to say to you, uh, hunting, if you're willing to give that up, then you can come follow me, because that's taking priority over me. What if Jesus were to say that? What if it was youth sports? What if Jesus were to say, you need to be willing to give that up? That's your one thing because that has taken priority over me in your life. Or maybe some of the more obvious things that it could be is maybe something like an addiction. That's something we've talked about time and time again. What if Jesus were to say, the one thing you lack is you have given your life over to this addiction, whatever it may be. Or it could be just your pride, or it could be that there's somebody that you need to forgive, and there's some anger, resentment, grudge that you're holding on towards someone, and that would be your one thing. It could be for me, if I'm doing some deep self-reflection, and Jesus were to say, you've been following me for a long time, but you've kind of plateaued, and I want you to keep following me, and I want you to get deeper, but there's one thing holding you back. Maybe for me, he would say, It's being a people pleaser. Like you're too committed to what other people think about you over what it means to really follow me. What if Jesus were to say that to me? What if he were to say, it's time for you to give up your approval addiction? And I say that because over the last few years, that's one of the things in my life through uh, some of the events that I've gone to and some of the things that I've been a part of that's really been a sore spot for me that I've realized that, yeah, I avoid conflict sometimes and I seek to please people and I care maybe too much what other people think. And sometimes that has actually prevented me from really doing what God has called me to do. So what if Jesus were looking at me and said, that's one thing that you lack from really following me? What would that be for you? I would argue that whatever the one thing would be is probably rooted in one of those three lies from Henry Nouwen. I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others say or think about me. Maybe you can find your own place in this, and you think about these three lies, and maybe you have relied on one of these three lies too much, and maybe that's your one thing. But we do know that this guy is not willing to let go of his possessions, his wealth, his identity in his reputation, his identity in his possessions, and so he walks away. And we're told in verse 22 in Mark chapter 10 that he walks away sad, or the NRSV says he walks away grieving. It wasn't an easy decision for him. Maybe there was something deep within him that really did want to follow Jesus. But he walks away sad because he's not willing to let go. He wants to keep that control. That's the decision that he makes. One commentator said if he were to be helped, he would have to be crushed. In order to really follow Jesus, he would have to go through some pain and through some discomfort and maybe some uneasy feelings of letting go of what he's found his identity and security in. Um, There's a preacher named Chris Seedman that some of you maybe have heard of. He preaches at a church in Dallas. I know the Youth group has probably heard him at Winterfest before, and I go to this preacher's initiative every November, and he was talking to us, preacher to preacher, and he was 
going back in the vault to a time when he was in his early 20s and he was speaking in chapel in front of this really large crowd, thousands of people, and he hit a home run with a sermon. Great sermon. After it's over, everybody's telling him, great job, great job. And you can just tell, here's a great preacher. You know, he's going to be a great preacher someday. And then this guy named Lynn Anderson came up to him. Lynn Anderson's a longtime Church of Christ preacher. And he said, hey, Chris, great sermon. You're going to be a great preacher someday after God breaks your heart. And then walked away and left it at that. So he's stuck trying to figure out what in the world does he mean by that. I just preached a great sermon. Everybody's praising me. And here's this longtime preacher that says, you will be a great preacher after God breaks your heart. And he said what he's realized through time is some of the pain in life, or maybe even some of the pride, some of the need for approval of others and praise of others. He said those are things that you have to let go of in order to really follow Jesus. And that can be a painful process. So whatever the one thing may be for you, you can like picture Jesus saying there's one thing that you lack to really follow me. Wherever you're at on the journey and whatever that one thing for you may be, that may involve some discomfort and maybe even some pain. So he walks away and then Jesus has this teaching about the rich and the poor and verse 23 through 25, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Here's a, a drawing for you to help you have an idea of what this means. Now, if you were to travel to Jerusalem and you get a tour, I've never been to Jerusalem, but they might show you that there is a, a gate called Needle's Eye outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And the legend goes that if you were traveling to Jerusalem late at night and you couldn't get in through the city gate, maybe you could get through Needle's Eye Gate, but that was hard to do. You'd have to get the camel to dip down low and maneuver itself to get through this gate. And the only problem with that theory is uh, that wasn't written about or talked about until the 11th century. So more than likely, what Jesus means by here is what he says. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like a sewing needle. Uh, this is a deliberate overstatement. We've seen already that Jesus uses some exaggerated language to get his point across. This would be like saying it's easier to fit the whole ocean into a bottle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So if that's what he's saying, then that seems like it's impossible. So the question comes from the disciples in verse 26, well then who can be saved if it's that hard for those who have wealth, and this probably speaks to pretty much all Americans, then who can be saved? The initial question from the rich young ruler is how do I inherit eternal life? And now the disciples, because of all of this, are asking, well who can be saved? Which leads Jesus to say in verse 27, What's impossible with men, with human beings, is possible with God. So we take that verse, and we can do all sorts of things with that verse. But if we're keeping it in context of this story, of this conversation with the rich young ruler, if we're keeping it in context with this conversation with his disciples, maybe what Jesus means by that is whatever your one thing is, whatever is holding you back, whatever you're unwilling to let go of, you can't overcome it by your own willpower. It's impossible. But it is possible to do it through God. 
It is possible for the rich young ruler to become a follower of Jesus and part with his stuff and give it to the poor so he can't retrieve it, but it's only possible through God. It's only possible if he puts his hope and trust and his security and his identity in God. So Peter speaks up, as we've read in verse 28, and Peter says, we've left everything to follow you, and that's true. They left their fishing nets, they left their boats, they left their tax booths, and they left their jobs and family. They left all of this behind to go and be a disciple of Jesus. Peter speaks up, as he often does. This is now the third chapter in a row in Mark, where Peter is the one to say something, to break the silence, because he always feels like he needs to. We've left everything to follow you, and then Jesus says, true. And he lists seven things in verse 29. Is truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the gospel, the sake of the good news, will receive that back a hundred times. And then he goes through another list and then he says, now in this age and in the age to come. And then he lists seven things again. But what he includes uh, in the rest of the list, he's saying, What you receive is greater than what you let go of. But he includes persecutions in that in verse 30. Along with persecutions. So it's not just you give this up and you get these great material blessings. It's not the health and wealth gospel. Jesus has already mentioned in Mark chapter 3, who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? It's those who do the will of God. What you receive is a bond that's thicker than blood. And here Jesus says you also receive persecutions. You also receive something that's going to be very difficult. He's on his way to the cross. He has already told them when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, killed, and on the third day rise again. And right after this in Mark 10, verse 32, he gives his third passion prediction. He's telling them this is what's going to happen to him, and he's saying to follow me, to, to go deeper in following me, persecutions, hardships, difficulties, suffering will come along with it. And then he gives one last paradoxical statement, and he says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So I look at this story, and I, you know, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, all right, well, what's something practical? What's something that I can change in my life? If if I'm like the rich young ruler and Jesus is saying there's one thing that you lack, well, what steps do you take so that you can keep following Jesus? Or for those of you who are on the outside looking in, what steps do you take to become a follower of Jesus? Which I'll mention again in just a moment. Uh, One of the things that we've talked about is this season of Lent that's coming up. It actually starts this Wednesday. It's pretty well-known and well-practiced in the Christian tradition, not something we talk about very often in the Church of Christ. But Lent, starting Wednesday, March 6th, and going all the way into the day before Easter, taking Sundays off, is without getting into the history of all of it and what it means, it's basically you pick something and you fast from it. You stop doing it for 40 days. This mimics what Jesus did for 40 days in the wilderness as he was fasting and praying, and being tempted by Satan. So back in January, we proposed this challenge, what you're going to quit, and we challenge you to take a habit or a sinful behavior in your life and try quitting something for 10 days. 
And then see how God works on you through that. So maybe one of the steps that you could take is whatever your one thing may be, especially if that one thing is real obvious, maybe you participate in Lent and you abstain from that for 40 days and see how God will work on you through it. You know, I'm not sure. Your one thing may be something that's real obvious. Or you may have to go home and talk with your spouse, or you may have to go home and talk with some friends and really do some reflecting and praying and thinking about what in your life would be that one thing if Jesus were talking to you. Maybe you're believing in one of these three lies. I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others say or think about me. And maybe you found your identity in that. You know, I'm not sure where you're at, but I can guarantee you that Jesus doesn't want us to settle for just comfortable Christianity. If we were with Jesus today, I think he would constantly be challenging us to stay on that path and to go deeper. So if that's where you're at, the challenge for you is to figure out your one thing. What is a barrier in your life preventing you from following Jesus to deeper places? And For those of you who have not yet become a follower of Jesus, that first step is in baptism, and then you are invited to be on this journey here on this earth and and into eternal life of being with Christ. And if that's where you're at on the journey, that invitation will be for you in just a moment. If you need to grab one of our shepherds, who one will be up front with me, a few will be around the room, you can pray with one of our elders privately. And we ask you to stand back up and we're going to take some time to sing.